Well, again, Happy New Year to you all, and it's a blessing to be with you on this Lord's Day. This morning, our text is from Matthew chapter 2, as we consider uh, this morning uh, the story of Herod and the dragon at the manger, if you will. I'll go ahead and read the text for us this morning in uh, Matthew chapter 2. I'm just going to go ahead and read the whole chapter so we have the whole story here now. The Word of God. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, Bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. And when they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which had been seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. And was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry and sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all of its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came to the land of Israel, But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Well, again, we have here before us a familiar story. We thought last week about the the birth narrative of our Lord and... It's difficult when we come seasonally to Christmas or these sorts of things to shake off the 
the film of familiarity. I think it was uh, Sammy Coleridge who used that phrase, a film of familiarity. I like that. That, that comes over things and sometimes keeps us from seeing clearly or thinking about things. And in some sense, the story of the wise men with their gold, frankincense, and myrrh is another one of these stories that, again, we're just familiar with. It's in the nativity scenes and so forth. But what we have before us in this story is an unbelievably dark uh, side to Christmas, an unbelievably dark story. Um and I mentioned last week at the in the sermon on Christmas, which Jerry says is up if you'd like to go listen to it, um, that there is this facet of Christmas that sometimes we don't reckon with, that dark side of Christmas. Yes, it's a joyous thing. Yes, the shepherds have to see the heavens rend open and the angels are singing uh, there uh, uh, before them and they come and they worship the child and they, they give the good news to Mary and they go back to the fields rejoicing. But what we don't see in that text in Luke 2 um, is the dragon lurking. It's not reported. We don't see him in the picture, but he's there. And we see this image, the image, and, and hence the title for the sermon this morning, comes from the Revelation text. Because in Revelation 12, John, I believe, on the Lord through John, in fact, is giving us a vision. He's giving us this apocalyptic vision of the story of Israel. But that story condensed down into the story, in some sense, of the birth narrative of Jesus. And in that story, in, in Jesus' uh, rendering of the story through uh, John in the apocalypse, we see a dragon hovering, lurking around the woman. Now, we don't have time. I have preached through Revelation. I love the book of Revelation. I love Revelation 12. And we don't have time to go deeply into that. It's worth diving into. It's such a beautiful and challenging uh, vision in Revelation 12. But the woman in Revelation 12, in some sense, represents Israel as the bride of God in the Old Testament, who's who is called to give birth to Messiah. It's by Abraham's seed that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And yet, in another sense, it's Mary as the as the, the the tip of the spear, if you will, the the end of the story, the one actually in and among Israel through whom uh, Messiah comes. And so, in some sense, John is giving us a vision of the dragon lurking and lingering around Israel throughout all of her story, throughout the whole Old Testament. Satan is there, the adversary, the accuser, wanting to destroy the woman. And that's been there through the whole story of the Old Testament. And when we get to the birth of Jesus, which then you have in, in Revelation chapter 12, the dragon is there ready to consume the child. But you'll remember in the story, he can't get him. The child is born and then we're told just kind of swept up into heaven. And, and in, a, in a strange way, the whole story of Jesus' life and ministry is contained right in that little phrase. He's swept up into heaven because eventually he is taken up into heaven. But the point is that the dragon, while he's there lurking and waiting, cannot get the child. He wants the child to consume the child, but he can't get him. And in some sense, you can look at the whole ministry of Jesus through that lens. I mean, we see him coming to get Jesus in the wilderness uh, in, in Matthew chapter 4 when, when Satan comes out to get him, but he can't 
get him, you know. And even on the cross, he he wants to get him, but he can't get him. Um, and he is raised from the dead and taken up into heaven. But at the same time, at the actual historical recording of the birth narrative here in Matthew chapter 2, we see a dragon, right? But this time it's in the person of Herod, right? This king who takes, he's, he's taken up by the dragon, if you will. He's, he's allied with the dragon, who when he hears of another king, would love to know where this child is so that he may go and worship him, of course. And so here we have in Herod the dragon, if you will, at the manger, the dragon in the story. And it's very important for us to remember that this is the context into which Jesus is born. It turns out that the birth of Jesus is not a sweet hallmark moment that, that just the whole world celebrates and it's just a warm, fuzzy, you know, nostalgic moment. That is, but no, it's, he's actually born into horror and terror and darkness and genocide. What we have in the birth of Jesus is the king returning to his throne. We have King Richard coming back to Nottingham, if you will. He's not welcome there. He's not welcome there because, you know, John, Prince John is on the throne. Prince John has liked his reign apart from King Richard. I have this in my mind because we just watched the cartoon version of Robin Hood with, uh, with Tommy the other day. So I'm, I'm sorry, I'm hearing, I see, I'm seeing a rooster and a fox right now and it's a whole thing going on. Right? But King Richard's here now in the form of a baby. And the would-be rulers don't want him. Again, if we could go back to the Garden of Eden, and this is again why I love the fact that R.C. Sproul calls sin, and I make my I make my my ninth graders, I ask them a little catechism question every class period. I have them stand and we do a, a self-made catechism, some from the Westminster Confession, but also just some that I want them to remember. And one of them is this, what is sin? And we could, the definition from the Westminster Shorter Catechism is a fine definition, but I have them memorize Sproul's definition. What is sin? Sin is cosmic treason against God. Sin is cosmic treason against God. I love that definition. Because if you go back to the Garden of Eden, what man does there, what Adam and Eve do there, is commit cosmic treason. Satan offers them the chance to have the throne. God knows the day you eat, you will be like him. Right? You will have the throne. You will have independence. It's an act of treason. At the end of the day, what Satan offers man and what man grasps after is the chance to be king. Now, what's funny in a, in a very sick way, in a very ironic way, is that that is the very thing God offered man. Right? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, rule over it, and subdue it. God made man to be king with a small K, but a king nonetheless, the king over creation, but we were not satisfied. That's why it's, it's cosmic treason. And what we see now in Herod is that story kind of reach its climax. I've said this before, like in the Garden of Eden, the sin kind of looks, it, it looks like the judgment is overblown. Right, They eat a piece of fruit, and it's like, that's it. Out of the garden, damnation, hell, cancer, car accident. I mean, just like, 
all hell literally breaks loose on the other side of that because they ate a piece of fruit. But it's not until you get to Herod and through Herod to Caiaphas and to Pontius Pilate that you see what the sin was. It was, it was, not, about, it was not a piece of fruit. It was, not a, it, was not a, it was not a small little infraction. You see in Herod and you see in Pontius Pilate and Caiaphas and the crowds chanting, crucify him, crucify him. You see what the eating of that fruit was. It, 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 was, it was the murder of God. It was, it was cosmic treason. It was, if we could get our hands on him, we would kill him and take his seat. Because when he's born in the flesh, this is exactly what Herod does. Like it, it's, it's that sin grown to full fruit. The image I've used again here and in other places is that of like a, a, a swab on the back of the neck that you take when you have your children for, a, for like strep throat. There's a little sin, and it's like God swabs the back of humanity's throat and puts it in a little Petri dish called Israel. And throughout the whole Old Testament, we watch the little bacteria grow. And in the beginning, you can't see whether it's strep. You can't see what it is. You need it to grow in the Petri dish. It just looks like a piece of fruit, and it kind of looks like an overreaction on God's part. But then throughout the entire Old Testament, the bacteria grows. And finally, in Herod, but then ultimately at Golgotha, oh, okay, I see what it was in the Garden of Eden. That little seed of sin, I now see the full fruit of it here in Herod and ultimately at Golgotha. It is, in fact, cosmic treason. And this is, this is the context of Christmas. It's God coming into this context so that he might set all things right. So we're dealing with this dark side of Christmas, but it's really, frankly, the only side of Christmas. Get, get rid of all the nostalgia, even though I, I love that stuff. But let us deal with reality. And the reality is we need King Richard back. We need somebody who will come here and set things right because we're in a mess. And Herod, and Herod is a classic example of this. So we've got a couple things going on in this text, and I don't want to... It's, it's too much to deal with all at once. I really kind of want to deal with this business of Jesus going to Egypt. But this, of course, the front side of this starts in a fascinating way with these magi coming. These astrologers, these kings, I don't know what they're. But they see this star and they read it. And they, in some sense, not in some sense, in a very real sense, God reveals himself to them. God speaks to them through this star. They read it and it tells them of a great king that they need to come worship. And these, these Gentiles make their way to worship this one whom they believe is great. And here we have what is typically celebrated on January 6th, namely Epiphany. The, the revelation, the appearance uh, of the, the revelation of the gospel to the Gentiles. And we have Gentiles, what's, but what's fascinating about this is you don't even have Jesus, you know, Mary and Joseph going to Gentiles. That's going to happen. They're going to go to Egypt. So we have even Jesus being brought to Gentiles. 
But you have Gentiles by God's sovereign providence coming to him. The nations are already, even while he's a baby in a manger or thereabouts, they're coming. Gentiles are beginning to pour in. And the, the prophecies of the Old Testament are beginning to be fulfilled. Where you will call a people who you do not know and they will come and they will worship. And already those who dwelt in darkness have seen a great light, literally, in the sky. And, they, and they're coming and they're worshiping this child. So we have the, the beginning of a dawning of a new day in which the gospel, which was given to Israel in seed form, is beginning to overflow now and make its way out to the Gentiles. And so there, there should be, as we read this, a, 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 a brewing of excitement. Some, this is good news for the world that is coming. With that being said, let's set our minds on this situation with Herod. Herod then hears the news and says, bring me news because I want to worship this child. The, these three guys make their way off. They find Jesus and then they are warned, hey, don't bring news back. Head out of town another way. And they, sensing the trouble, scurry out of town. And then an angel comes and reveals to Joseph, hey, you also skedaddle. You got to get out of here and head out. And so they make their way pack immediately. Again, if you read this text, the angels and dreams keep coming to Joseph. And in every single occasion, while we don't know much about Joseph, in every single occasion, he's just immediately obedient. He's immediately obedient. The Lord says, go. He's like, let's go pack the bags. We're leaving. To leave our home, just go down to Egypt. He's told, all right, come back. All right, he packs his bags, let's go. Whatever the Lord says, he does. So we don't know a lot about Joseph, but what we do learn of him is very honorable. And they head to Egypt. And then as they're heading to Egypt, now I'm down in, in verse 14. And when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and they departed for Egypt. Now, again, when we hear Egypt reading the Bible, like little red flags go up because Egypt is a significant place in the in the Old Testament, right? It, it's the place of the Old Testament story of the Exodus. It's where it's where God's people were for a long time enslaved, and then and then the story of stories, if you will, in the Old Testament is God with His outstretched arm. You know, the great story of redemption and salvation is is God extending His arm, defeating Pharaoh bringing his people out through the Red Sea, through the promised land and in, uh, through the wilderness and into the promised land. So when it's, he goes to Egypt, it's not like, oh, you know, he went to, you know, some, it's just a random place. I mean, Egypt is significant for us. And then you get that because now as, as they head out to Egypt, Matthew quotes that text that we, we read in Hosea. And he was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord, through the prophet saying, out of Egypt, I have called my son. And the minute Matthew does that, like it, all kinds of things have to happen because the, the quote here is from the prophet Hosea. And in Hosea, Hosea is just telling a story. He's, he's saying to Israel, guys, the Lord called you out of Egypt. You're, you're the son. You're his son. Do you remember that in Exodus I can't remember if it's three or four where he says it, but he tells Moses, go and you tell Pharaoh this, let my son, my firstborn son go. He calls Israel to Moses. He says, you go with this message to Pharaoh. You, and this is why at the end, the, the plague that ends the, 
The lockdown here is the killing of the firstborn son. It's like, you will not let my firstborn son go. Therefore, I will kill your firstborn son. Right? This is a battle of firstborn sons. So I will kill your son because you are holding my son. And my son is Israel. So the image of the son. So, so Hosea is telling the story. The Lord is telling the story through Hosea. And he's like, guys, because remember, at the time Hosea is telling them this story, they're about to, it's going to be bad. They're going to be dragged off into Assyria. The enemies of the Lord are going to pounce on them. And the Assyrians were bad dudes. They were rough. And so the judgment of the Lord was going to come down. And Hosea is explaining it. And he's, he's saying, guys, you're the son of God. He loved you. His bonds of love were on you. He, he fed you like a little child. He brought you out of bondage. He called his son out of Egypt. But what did his son do? His son rebels. His son goes after idols. His son wants to worship other gods. His son, you know, is, is prodigal. His son essentially gives his dad the finger and goes off. It's like, I know, Evars used to get mad at me if I would ever say something like that. And he should, he should, it's inappropriate. But I don't know how to say it in such a way that it's not, I want it to be offensive, what we do. Because what we do to God is not just sin. It is that, but again, it's cosmic treason. And so the son, he's delivered, but then he, he rejects his dad and goes off. And the father brings the hand of discipline down. And that hand of discipline in Hosea 11 is the Assyrians. I'm going to bring them in and it's going to be rough. But then he comes back at the end of that text and he says, but can I ever forget you? And remember, this goes back to our Advent text in Isaiah. Can a nursing mother forget her child? Perhaps even she can. But I can't forget you, Israel. And he says to Ephraim, to Israel in in this story, I'm going to withhold the full weight of my judgment on you and I'm going to bring you back. Now, now Hosea is just telling the story. Hey, Israel, this is your story. Remember you went down to Egypt and God called you his son and brought you out? Now, Matthew, when Jesus is taken by Joseph to go to Egypt, Moses draws back on this Hosea text and says, this happened. This all happened so that this text could be fulfilled. A text in which Hosea was just saying, Something about the past. And Matthew just gathers all of that up and says all of that, this whole story about being down in Egypt and being brought out is the story of Jesus. This whole story has been a prelude to the story of stories, to the real going down to Egypt and to the real being brought out. Moses, uh, Moses, Matthew is telling the story of Jesus so as to say that he is the real Moses. He is bringing about the true and final exodus. And in fact, we have in this little story some interesting little twists because in this story, there's a Pharaoh figure as well. Because when we hear about the killing of children, right, by a king, he just starts killing the children, 
our minds also go back to Egypt because they go back to the story in Exodus 1 when Pharaoh looks and he says, that's it, we, the, the, the Israelites are growing too many, we have to start killing all the children. He just commits this mass, again, genocide on the, the infants of Israel. And so when we're in this story and all of a sudden we have Herod start doing this, again, there's a connection to us where our mind, Matthew is connecting a story for us to help us get our minds framed, get the story of Jesus framed right. There's a, there's a different Pharaoh, and the Lord is delivering him. But here's what's here's the twist of the whole thing. Where is this Pharaoh located? In Israel. And it's even as Jesus is leaving Israel to go to Egypt that Matthew chooses to plant this Hosea text. Because later Jesus is going to come out of Israel. And it's not when he comes out of Israel that he says, this was to fulfill what he said, out of Egypt I called my son. It's when he's leaving Israel to go to Egypt, he says, out of Egypt I've called my son. And Herod's there killing children. And it's as if, it's as if Matthew is leveling this indictment, even against Israel, that Israel has become like Egypt. And out of this, God has called his true son. And where to all places? Actually to Egypt. But he won't leave him there either. He will call him out of Egypt and bring him back to Israel. And we'll see that and hence we launch out into the rest of the ministry of Jesus. But it's worth asking, why is there a Herod in Israel? Why is there weeping in Bethlehem, Rachel weeping for her children, and she will not be, she will not be, she will not be comforted? Why is that? Okay, it's one thing when it's down in Egypt, but why is that here in Israel? And the looking back to the Hosea text helps us here. This is the result of our sin. Like in some sense, we have done this to ourselves. When you want a king like the other nations, right? When you want Saul over David. When you want to grasp for the fruit, you end up with genocide. You end up with Herod. Even within Israel, this is the king, if you will, that we have chosen. And that's the point Hosea is making in that text. You're the son, Israel, that God loved and he called out. But you went after other gods, and those gods will crush you. Those gods will destroy you. And Herod is the picture of that. Herod is the Herod is the witness to this truth that what we've chosen is darkness and the darkness is dark indeed. But in this darkness is born the light of the world, the sun, the true sun that the Father has called out of Egypt. And he will deliver us from Pharaoh. Now, so my my desire today in this text is to look back to the Hosea to help us understand why the darkness is dark. But then let's just quickly look forward to the Revelation text because the Revelation text kind of tells us where the story goes. So the Hosea text tells us why we're here. We're here because the son, small s son, Israel, we, the children of God in Adam, right? We, we were the prodigals. We, we created this. We ended up in the pigsty because we rejected the father. We ended up with Herod. We're the people who won't be comforted because what's there to comfort us? That's how we got in this mess. And that darkness highlights the brightness of Jesus. But the Revelation 12 story tells us something else. 
It tells us that, in fact, this son will conquer. He will dash them to pieces like a rod of iron. That's why I called the audible to Psalm 2 today. The nations are raging, no doubt. We're grasping after fruit. We're raging. We're killing the children. We refuse to be comforted. But God in heaven laughs. Herod can do nothing against the sovereign will of God. Your cosmic treason's a joke. It's a joke. Rarely in the Bible do you hear God laughing. But in Psalm 2, he laughs over the cosmic treason of the nations. And what does he do in Psalm 2? He sets up his son, his king upon his holy hill. And he says, ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. You can see they're already coming to him. The nations are already coming to the son. The, the prophecy of Psalm 2 is already being fulfilled as the magi from the nations are trickling in and already laying their gifts at his feet and worshiping him. I will give the nations to you as your inheritance. And then it says, be warned, you kings. He's going to dash you to pieces with a rod of iron. Like jars of clay, he's going to smash you to bits. Right? That prophecy is there in Psalm 2. And in Revelation 12, he picks up on that same thing. I don't know. You go back and read it. But in Revelation 12, he picks up on the imagery of ruling with a rod of iron. This is the son that the dragon is trying to get, but he can't get him. He is taken up to heaven in victory. Even when he does his worst, and we know the rest of the story, he actually crucifies the son, but he can't get him. He's raised from the dead and taken up into glory where he is seated right now with all authority in heaven and earth. Right now, reigning in heaven. Right, That's the victory. That's the end of the story. In, in our text, in fact, it just says, and Herod died. Yes, he did. Right, Herod, as bad as he was, he dies. Now he's replaced by his awful and evil son, who's just as evil as Herod. But they die. Their stories end. God laughs at their treason. But Jesus Christ reigns forevermore. And Revelation 12 reminds us of that. But Revelation 12 reminds us of something else. And this, and here I, I bequeath to you the readings today. Go back and just read them all. Right? The, the readings that are chosen in our text are not like accidental readings. I choose them because they, they work together, as does the whole Bible anyway. But specifically, in that Revelation 12 text, we're told the dragon is waiting for the woman to give birth to the child so we can get the child. He, he goes after the child, but he can't get the child. The child is taken up into heaven. So he goes after the woman. But he can't get the woman because the woman is taken out into the wilderness and so he spews water and you, there's all kinds of, you have to work through all this imagery. I know it's complicated. And I'm not saying I understand it all. It's complicated. But he spews water after her and the earth opens up and the water can't get to her and she's taken to a safe place. So what does he do, this dragon? Go, ah, tail between his legs. I, I'm foiled. No, it says he goes after her offspring. He said, well, well, the offspring was the child. He was taken up into heaven. Yeah. But the offspring now of the woman is us. Okay, it's the church. And as, as the dragon could not get the child and could not get the woman, he comes after her offspring, after her children. And hence link this to the first Peter 5 text where we are told, beware, be sober-minded. That ancient foe is like a roaring, roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The reason why I want us to reflect upon the dark side of Christmas is because, number one, this is the context into which Jesus was born. 
Number two, Jesus has brought true victory. He has brought light into the darkness. The light has come into the darkness, and it has rejected him, but he's cast it out. He is the light of the world that cannot be overcome by the darkness. And yet, we are the body of Christ. We, the church, must be prepared now for this kind of world. The dragon wants you. Now, the good news is, resist him, and he will flee. You are united to the victor. You have absolute victory over sin, Satan, and death. But it does not mean you will not suffer. It does not mean you will not be tempted. It does not mean you will not be in situations that will cause you to tremble. That you will not undergo real and severe trials. That's why Peter comes to us and says, you need to know the times. You need to recognize the enemy that you're up against. You need to read this story because we follow this king. We are loyal to King Richard. And Prince John does not want that. And you're going to pay the price for it. Right? The dragon hates you. Remember, in, go back again and read Revelation 12 in the, through this lens. Beware you who are on the earth and who are in the sea, for he is angry, meaning the dragon, for he knows his days are short. He knows he's defeated, but it's like a, it's like a snake whose head is crushed. Genesis 3.15. It's like a serpent who's, when a serpent's head is crushed, he doesn't just fall over dead. He writhes. He writhes and just snaps his head around. You be, you got to beware of that. Defeat is given. Death is imminent. But danger is real. And so it is for us within the kingdom of God serving this victorious king. Satan, sin, and death are defeated, but they're writhing. And Peter calls you to be vigilant then. To know that, hey, you are in a real cosmic battlefield, right? You you serve a king who the world and Satan hates. He hates Christ and he hates the body of Christ. He hates the woman and the offspring of the woman. He hates you. So brothers and sisters, my New Year's call to you, my Christmas call to you, as we are still technically in the season of Christmas, is to be sober to be vigilant, to know we're not just managing our 80 years until the Lord calls us home, but that we are to set our minds to seek first the kingdom of God, to know that we are to put on the full armor and we're engaged in cosmic battle for the sake of the kingdom, right? We need that kind of sober-mindedness to know that there's a real enemy that wants to undo and destroy the work of the church. He cannot, he cannot, but it's a real battle. That has to be engaged in. This is the context of Christmas. And this is the context of our worship this morning. This is the context you're about to walk back out to. I don't know what troubles await you out there. But I know there are many. So go forth and serve the king with sober minds and sober hearts and with utter confidence in the victory of our king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for that king of kings that was born to undo our cosmic treason. We confess our cosmic treason. We confess that at the end of the day, we want your seat. We want to be God. But we thank you that you have forgiven us. 
We thank you that you did not leave us and abandon us to the self-defeating and self-destructive ways of this treason, but that you sent your son into it, that he might even bear not only your wrath, but ours as well as we turned on him. But Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've loved us, that you've called us to him, that you've opened our hearts and eyes that we might be loyal unto him. And so, Father, make us sober-minded, we pray, as we go forth to serve you today in whatever troubles or trials come our way. May we seek first your kingdom with utter confidence, but with also sober-mindedness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.